You're listening to a resource from the Field Church in Mandeville, Louisiana. It is our joy to glorify God by treasuring Jesus in the preaching of his word. We pray this resource will be a tool used to aid in your relationship with Christ in addition to your local church. Good morning, TFC, and welcome this morning. I pray for you as individuals and families that by God's grace, you are well. If our staff can do anything to serve you during this time at all, we would love to do that. Just let us know. I've been so encouraged by watching how our church loves and serves one another. When I think about my love, my thanksgiving, and my prayer for you, for your love, your holiness, and for your joy in the Lord, I find myself really relating to what Paul said and prayed by the way of introduction in his letter to the Ephesians. To the church at Ephesus, he said, I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints. I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation and in, in knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe according to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. God has done and is doing this very work in our church, and I am so thankful. Now, the essential tool that God has used to shape us has been his word, that is, the Bible. And more specifically in this season of our church, the book of Luke. So as we continue to journey through this book, would you open your Bibles to follow along together, verse by verse, to Luke chapter 9, verses 18 through 22. Luke chapter 9, verses 18 through 22. Today's sermon will mark part two of a two-part message from this section that I've titled, Jesus is the Christ of God. Jesus is the Christ of God. I've given this two-part message this title because this title simply, concisely clarifies Luke's main point in writing this section. It simply derives from what God and Luke were intending to communicate in writing this portion of Luke's letter. If we were to expand further the description of that main point, 
we would say that in this section of Luke, Luke is including a concise statement which identifies Jesus as the promised Messiah. This concise statement is Jesus is the Christ of God. Jesus is the Christ of God. Luke chapter 9 verse 20 shows us this. In the passage that we're studying, this statement comes from the heart and the lips of Peter, who by the work of God's spirit has believed in Jesus as the Christ. Based upon what he's seen and what he's heard from Jesus during his Galilean ministry. This passage does more, though, than simply exhibit Peter's belief. It explicitly identifies Jesus as the Messiah, and it gives the intended conclusion of Jesus' first phase of ministry in Galilee. From the fall of man in Genesis chapter 3 and throughout all of the Old Testament, the Messiah's arrival was foretold and anticipated. Through the birth narratives in Luke's gospel, as we move into the New Testament, we have witnessed testimony of Jesus of Nazareth, Nazareth as the long-awaited Messiah. And from the baptism through his first phase of earthly ministry, Jesus, more than anything, proved his Messiahship. Therefore, we can conclude that the long-awaited Messiah, or Christ, has arrived, and that Jesus is he. Therefore, Luke is helping us to take a step back at this point in the narrative and come to the same conclusion based upon what is, at this point now, a sufficient amount of evidence. Before we go any further in Luke's gospel, we are moved to explicitly come to this conclusion because Jesus has foundationally established it. We should come to the conclusion that Jesus is the Christ. With this said, we will see today that many still reject Jesus. In light of the, the sufficient evidence of his ministry, we've spent majority of our time on this last week, and we will touch on it and begin again with it briefly this week. But sadly, this was true then, and sadly, this is true now, that many still reject Jesus. Although the evidence of Christ's ministry was recorded so that we may believe that he is the Christ, as John 20, 31 states, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Many do not receive him as the Christ. So we should come to the conclusion that Jesus is the Christ, but we will see also that God must reveal this to us. God must reveal this to us. Through the opening of our eyes and to the testimony of his word, which for us is his written word showing us the testimony of Christ's ministry and which for the original audience was Christ Jesus who is the word in human flesh. God's spirit must open our eyes, make us see this truth and cause us to respond. Without it, we will be blinded by our sin. Romans 3.11 states, none is righteous. No, not one. No one understands no one 
seeks for God. So we should come to the conclusion that Jesus is the Christ, but we will also see that we must have the right understanding of who the Christ must be and what the Christ must do. We must have the right understanding of who the Christ must be and what the Christ must do. We may say and even genuinely think we have the right idea of who the Messiah must be and what the Messiah must do. But today we will come into a more full understanding and we must make sure that we have the right portrait as many have made up their own Christ. The Christian rapper KB, who by the way is my favorite, says in his song, New Portrait, Christ to the culture, Christ to the vulture, committed genocide with the cross and a holster. Christ of America, Christ of the system, that is not my savior, that's a politician. Christ that the Lord knows, Christ that was foretold, Christ that's sure to come back in his war clothes. Which Christ do you believe? You gotta know before you leave. In Matthew, we read that some will even think that they know the Christ, but they have not embraced the real Christ. They have thought him to be someone else that he is and thought him to value something else than he does and thought him to have a support of something that he actually never supported or participated in. We can actually go on believing that we've made up in our own mind or hope to be true about the Christ or even what we feel to be true about the Christ is not true. Claiming, using his name, thinking we're representing, and the whole time it was just a figment of our imagination and we just attached his name to it, thinking that it would stand because we said it. Matthew chapter seven, verses 21 through 23 say, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. The image here is rather silly. If you can imagine one just stating prophecies or just claiming to have victory over demons because Jesus's name is used or even that mighty works are being done by Christ and the whole time, none of it was true. It may feel less spirit filled, but we must know the Christ of the Bible That's who he really is. So the question today is also posed to you. Based upon the evidence of his ministry, who do you say that Jesus is? And then do you have a biblical view of who the Christ is and what the Christ must do? This is what we are after because this is what Luke and Christ are intending in this passage. So before we read it, let's pray and let's seek the Lord's help in opening our eyes and transforming our hearts for his glory. Let's pray. Father, we come before you today. We ask that you would help us 
to see the truth of your word, that it would be exposed to us for what it is, that our hearts would be transformed by it, that we would be changed, that we would believe, and that we would see you rightly. Let your word do this work. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, so let's read Luke chapter 9, verses 18 through 22. Briefly touch on verses 18 through 19, which we covered last week, and then finish this two-part message with verse 20 through 22. Let's read Luke chapter 9, verses 18 through 22. Now it happened that as he was praying alone, the disciples were with him. And he asked them, who do the crowds say that I am? And they answered, John the Baptist, but others say Elijah, and others that one of the prophets of old has risen. Then he said to them, but who do you say that I am? And Peter answered, the Christ of God. And he strictly charged them and commanded them to tell this to no one, saying the son of man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. This is beautiful. The word of God is so satisfying, sweeter than honey from the comb, isn't it? Well, if you remember from last week, which if you don't, I encourage you to go back and watch. We are exposing this passage through two points. Those two points are simply the two questions that Jesus asks in this passage. Those two questions help us to understand what conclusion we should come to about Jesus at this point in the gospel, namely that he is the Christ of God. Last week in verses 18 through 19, we looked at the first point or the first question, which is, who do the crowds say that I am? Who do the crowds say that I am? Verses 18 through 19 read, now it happened that as he was praying alone, the disciples were with him and he asked them, who do the crowds say that I am? And they answered John the Baptist, but others say Elijah and others that one of the prophets of old has risen. This is the first question and the first answer. This is what we see about Jesus's question regarding the crowds. And it reveals to us the sad reality of what the multitudes believe about Jesus that although they had the same evidence of Christ's ministry, they rejected Jesus as the Christ. They were okay with him as a re religious representative, but not the Christ. Why did they choose not to believe? Why did they reject Jesus as the Christ? Well, among the many reasons, first, they predetermined what Christ should be like. They had already predetermined what the Christ should be like, and he didn't fit their expectation or their desire. First Peter says, 
as you come to him, a living stone, rejected by men in the sight of God, chosen and precious. You yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to a holy priesthood to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in scripture, behold, I'm laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. Jesus, although the Christ has become offensive because he was not what they wanted him to be as the Christ. In addition to this, secondly, they focused on the temporary. They focused on the temporary. This true Christ didn't offer them the temporary euphoric benefits. Their fixation was upon a Christ who would establish them as powerful and victorious and a wealthy nation. And they thought of Jesus as one who may do this. And, he, and the thought of eternal and stable benefits as opposed to immediate and instantly gratifying benefits wasn't appealing to them. The Christ was boring. He was anticlimactic. He was a letdown. He was poor, truthful, unattractive, and lowly after the glory of his father and after the salvation that included rejection and a cross. Can't have your best life now and this type of Christ. Your best life will be the next one and this one you give up. Give up this life being about you. Give all your stuff away because the main concern is what matters eternally which then says explicit gospel sharing and disciple making is the main purpose. And everywhere in the Bible, that means mainly one thing, suffering. More than anything else, and I'm not just making this up, more than anything else, that means suffering for the Christian. 1 Peter 2, 20 through 21 says, but if you do good, and suffer for it, if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. Look at this, for to this you have been called. You have been called mainly as your calling to do good and suffer for it. For this, to this you have been called because Christ also suffered for you. He suffered for us, leaving us an example, showing his love, his great love, through his suffering. And our Christ's likeness comes from suffering like him. He suffered for us, leaving for us an example so that we might follow in his steps. Suffering while treasuring Christ glorifies God, meaning it makes God look supremely valuable, which he is. That's what it means to glorify him, to show him to be set apart as he is so that it may be evident. It may be made evident, visible, manifest. You can, you can see God's glory. So now you can see how suffering while at the same time treasuring Christ 
would do that then. If Christ is still your treasure when you suffer, then he is shown to others to be more precious than anything else. Which is why Paul says, as it is my eager expectation and hope that Christ will be honored or glorified in my body, whether by life or by death, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Paul's example here says this, his greatest hope was that Christ would be glorified by him. If it was to live on this earth, it would mean that Christ is superior to all other things for him. If he were to die, that means it would be gain because he gets Christ. And so therefore in his picture to us, the greatest way he can glorify Christ in his body is to show that Christ is far superior to life and Christ is far superior even in death. This makes Christ look more valuable than life, which he is. So the multitudes of Jews focused on the temporary benefits, which this Christ didn't seem to offer. Plus, he looked like a sufferer and called his followers to the same. And thirdly, they did not see their foundational need of permanent forgiveness of sin. They did not see their foundational need of permanent forgiveness for sin. They were self-righteous. They thought they were good enough on their own. They thought their family line or their good deeds would somehow secure their place before God or somehow that they knew better. But they didn't listen to God. They hadn't listened to God when he told them the gravity of the situation that they are in that they are guilty of sin and in need of forgiveness, that there is only one of two options. Either Jesus, the Christ, pays the penalty, the just penalty for their sin, or they do. And instead, they were willing to roll the dice because they didn't see clearly the gravity of their sin before a holy God and their just punishment. So Christ's claim to offer forgiveness freely was offensive to them. How dare Christ categorize them as sinners? But we know 1 John 1, 8 through 9 tells us, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. And so this is the sad reality of the rejection of Jesus by the multitudes, despite the sufficient evidence. And we know that from the rest of Luke's gospel, this sin festers and grows, which leads permanently to rejecting Jesus and his ways and having him flogged and mocked and beaten and tortured and killed because of the threat he imposed on their lives. And James shows us the tragic result of sin. He says each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it's fully grown, brings forth death. The rejection of Jesus by the multitudes is a result 
of sin and destruction will be the result of their rejection of Christ. And we can see the death that sin still brings forth today. As we continue to grieve over the killing of George Floyd, we understand from the scriptures that this is a sin problem at its core. We abhor racism because it is sin. And black lives matter because if you are a human, you are created in the image of God. And Christ committed his life to an interracial bride. And we mourn with the black community in the isolation and vulnerability and fear that you feel. And since this is a sin issue and not in line with the love of God, the character of God, the goodness of creation, or the gospel, we must pray, especially when we don't know what to do, for God to bring about his love and unity and reconciliation and healing. We must most foundationally pray for people's hearts to change, and we must share the gospel for people's hearts to change through the gospel of Jesus Christ. We need individual hearts to be transformed and come alive in Christ. This only comes through the transformative work of the gospel of Jesus Christ. We need the gospel to transform individual hearts. Our hearts are the problem. The scriptures tell us that our problems are not the problem. Our hearts are the problem. Which is why, again, I can go on vacation and be frustrated by the same exact problems that I experience at home. Because my heart is my problem. There's sin in there. And I need God to transform my heart. The problems are where we see the fruit and our hearts are where we find the root. Although seemingly slow, the gospel has always moved forward through individual hearts. One substantial salvation and one heart transformation at a time. Rather than putting our hope in a top-down, broad, and general reform, we as Christians look towards a bottom-up, one-heart-at-a-time transformation. And the gospel will transform individual hearts, which will bring God's kingdom, God's loving and diverse kingdom here to earth. When the Bible speaks of God's kingdom, it refers to God's reign and God's rule. People in a kingdom are people with a king. And each individual gladly submits as they do to Christ and his reign and his rule in their hearts, making him king by repenting of sin and trusting in Christ through the gospel. And as hearts, the hearts of his people are then transformed into the likeness of him, then we will have hearts of people full of the heart of God. All things are perfectly under Christ's reign and rule in heaven. And one day his reign and his rule will be perfectly established here on earth. And God's kingdom includes people from every tribe, every tongue, and every nation. So as we live on mission, let us pray. And as we hold tight to his word, let us pray as he told us 
for his kingdom to come. And some may genuinely ask, well, Pastor Sam, what can I do? What are you doing to actually affect change? And I would say, I am doing what I'm doing right now, this morning. This is my niche. This is my platform. This is my job. This is how I can make a small difference. To educate simply one body of believers that this is a heart problem and that we need individual hearts to be transformed through the gospel, which is how the gospel goes forth, which then will bring about God's loving and diverse kingdom here to earth. And I pray that by God's grace, it might affect some change through the multiplication of our people. And I think this should be the niche of all Christians, gospel transformation. While we see in the scriptures that some topical efforts may aid in the stirring of the soil of hearts to soften them in preparation to receive the seed of the gospel, the Bible points us to how tragedy, how voices, how love, how action, how truth, how conviction stirs the hard soils in our hearts. The gospel is what will cause permanent Christ-likeness. So you too can steward the platform God has given you to bring God's kingdom here to earth. And furthermore, as we can attest to, the reality of sin pervades more than just this area. It pervades every area of life. And the reality of verses 18 through 19 in Luke chapter 9, in light of the first question that Jesus asks, reveals not, a, not the reality of a genuine confusion, but it reveals the sad summary of the multitudes at the conclusion of Jesus's Galilean phase of ministry a reality of sin and unbelief in light of the evidence of Jesus's Messiahship. Luke is telling us this explicitly and concisely in summary. But now, as we move away from this sad reality, we close with a glorious reality. The revealed truth about who Jesus is as the Christ of God. The second question that Jesus asks is, number two, who do you say that I am? Verses 20 through 22. Luke writes, then he said to them, but who do you say that I am? And Peter answered, the Christ of God. And he strictly charged them and commanded them to tell this to no one, saying the son of man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. After the answer of his first question, verse 20 says, then he said to them, then he said to them, but as if to say, okay, that's what the crowds say. That's what the human perspective is. That's what they are saying. But what matters for you is what you believe. I want to know what you 
believe. The you is emphatic, emphatic in all three of these gospel accounts. As Jesus is almost drawing out for Peter to come forth and vocalize what Jesus already knows Peter believes. For Peter's explicit confession and for our viewing as though it is right that the crowds should have no effect on the disciples' belief and affirming that the multitudes, are, their consensus should have no effect. He's affirming that the multitude's consensus should not be the disciples' consensus. And that what matters for their salvation and for their obedience is what they believe individually. In distinction from others, he is asking, what do you think? which is the main question of this section. And Luke writes, verse 20, and Peter answered, the Christ of God, the Christ of God, which is the main point of this section. Peter, as a spokesman of the other disciples as well, in this case, answers rightly. He answers rightly. There's the right answer. There's the right summary of what Jesus's ministry should have established to this point. This is what Jesus is establishing and what he has established at this point in his ministry, that Jesus is the Christ of God. He is the long-awaited Messiah. He has come. Now, a little understanding, Messiah and Christ mean the anointed one, the kingly one, the long expected fulfillment of all of the Old Testament prophecies. Messiah is the Greek transliteration of the Hebrew word Messiah. And Christ is the English transliteration of the Greek word Christos. And Christos is the Greek translation of the Hebrew word Messiah. So when you hear the word Christ in English or Christos in Greek, it brings an overtone of a title and even becoming in many ways a personal name for Jesus as Messiah, the anointed one, the kingly one, the long expected fulfillment of all of the Old Testament prophecies. And Jesus is the Greek form of Joshua, which is the Hebrew name that means the Savior or the one who saves. So when you see Jesus, his real historical name, he is Savior and he is Christ Messiah. That is Jesus Christ, the Messiah who is God and who is sent by God for his people. Peter answers, you are the Christ of God. And Peter says this in our passage, and Peter had known this. In John chapter 1, verses 40 through 42, it says this. One of the two who heard John speak and followed Jesus was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He first found his own brother Simon and said to him, we have found the Messiah, which means Christ. He brought him to Jesus. Jesus looked at him and said, 
You are Simon, the son of John. You shall be called Cephas, which means Peter. And he stated it here explicitly in our passage today. Jesus is the Messiah. He is the Christ. Jesus is the deliverer for whom God's people had been looking for for so long. And what is so glorious about this confession is that Matthew's account tells us that this was not merely human interpretation like the multitudes. This was a gracious, divine revelation by God himself. Matthew chapter 16, verses 15 through 17. He said to them, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my father who is in heaven. The spirit of God affects salvation. And we must pray that God would open our eyes, that we might behold his glory as the Christ of God. What a glorious thing that it is for those who are blind, who do not understand, and do not, who do not seek for God to, be, to have their eyes opened and to experience salvation. It's a miracle. Salvation is a miracle. And how comforting that God must do the work Left to ourselves, we would not believe. Left to ourselves, we must do the miraculous work of believing by ourselves. And evangelizing, left to ourselves, we would not do well. We would not effect change. We would fall away ourselves in our own faith. Left to ourselves, it rests fully upon us. We must sustain. But with God as the agent, our hope is fully in him and we can have hope that he is involved and he is fully in control and he cares for us. So now in verses 21 through 22, as we close this section, Luke tells us what the Messiah must do, what it truly means to be the Messiah and what we must believe in if we are to believe in him as the Messiah. Verse 21, it says this, and he strictly, strictly meaning sternly, he charged them and commanded them. If you read along in your passage, he charged them and he commanded them not to tell anyone, to tell this to no one. Why? Because the crowds in their rejection of him as the Christ they also desired of him to be what they wanted and were ready to make him king. It says in John chapter 6, verses 14 through 15, when the people saw the sign that, had, that he had done, they said, this indeed is the prophet who is to come into the world. Perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. And this is not what it will mean for him to be the Messiah, for them to make him king, which is why he withdrew, which is why he is telling them to not tell anybody. 
What it doesn't mean for him to be the Christ of God is him restoring their prosperity to give them their temporary benefits and the life that they always wanted. This was not the right motive and this was not the right portrait of the Christ. Being the Christ for him is the recognition that Jesus is the Messiah and now is followed immediately by the teaching that means for him, it is a cross. And for them, it is a cross also. It means rejection for him. It means suffering for him. It means resurrection for him. Verse 22, the son of man. This is a, if you follow along, he says the son of man, this is a messianic title from the book of Daniel and the identifying of himself as fully human. It says he must, the son of man must, he must suffer because it will accomplish the real work, the most loving work of salvation to forgive us of our sins and bring us to God. And is this the work, this is the work that will display that his father is glorious as he treasures him amidst of suffering. And it will display that he loves us as he follows through for us amidst suffering for doing good. His suffering was the greatest way to display the glory of his father, the superior value of his father. And his suffering was the greatest way to display his love for us. A suffering Christ was God's greatest plan to exhibit the glory of God and the love for people. Suffering and holding on to God and continuing in love for another most clearly displays God's great worth and a deep, true love. Suffer many things. This is what he must do. Rejection, pain, abandonment, disloyalty, hatred, accusation. He must be rejected by the agents that God used. What they meant for evil, God used for good. The greatest and most heinous evil in history was used for the greatest good in all of history. God can turn all things for good by the elders and chief priests and scribes. These are the ones who denied him because they predetermined what Christ should be like, because they focused on the temporary, because they didn't see their foundational need of permanent forgiveness for sins, because Jesus was a threat. And our passage says that then he must be killed. The evil crucifixion that God used to save our souls. Mark 10, 45, for the son of man came to give his life as a ransom for many. But the last piece of this section says, but he must on the third day also be raised. This is the Christ of God we must believe in. The suffering and yet victorious Christ. He must be raised to overcome sin and defeat death that we too might be raised to walk in newness of life. This picture is the Christ of God.
This is in whom we must believe. So at last, the truth of Jesus's Messiahship at this point in Luke's gospel is settled. But the question is, who do you say that he is? Let's pray. Father, we come and we're thankful for your scriptures. We pray that your scriptures would have their effect in our hearts and transform us through your words and your spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening to this resource from the Field Church in Mandeville, Louisiana. We pray that it helps you joyfully make Jesus Christ your treasure. 